James, how many years of your life did you work on this film? Well, I, it began as a screenplay um, for HBO in the late 1990s, so uh, nearly 20 years ago. I, um, I'm a New Yorker. I grew up uh, very familiar with the iconic story of Kitty Genovese's murder. 38 eyewitnesses watched for more than a half hour while a woman was repeatedly attacked. None helped. That story that we all know that helped inspire the 911 emergency system, um, neighborhood watch groups, Good Samaritan laws. That story was so defining of New York and America in many respects and any New Yorker, or many New Yorkers, are very familiar with it. So um, I am, a, as a screenwriter, drawn to iconic stories we think we know, and this is an iconic story. I had done a screenplay about the Lincoln assassination called The Conspirator that Robert Redford had directed, and before that I did a mini or limited series called The Bronx's Burning about New York in the late 1970s with John Turturro and Oliver Platt. So Kitty Genovese's murder seemed to me like a a very interesting, compelling story to do as a screenplay because at the center of it is an incredible mystery. What happened in those apartments that night? And it was at that time that I met the subject of the witness, Bill Genovese. So it started, in a sense, 20 years ago. It did not become a, a documentary film. Um, nothing came of that HBO project, um, but I stayed in touch with Bill. I was very struck when I met Bill the first time. Firstly, you meet him and you spend all of about two minutes and you, you understand how remarkable he is and what he's overcome in his life. Age 16, his sister was murdered. 17, his mother had a stroke when she was 53. At 19, Bill lost both legs in Vietnam. And at 21, his father had a stroke at the age of 59, all in a five-year period. And yet Bill has had a remarkable and full life, beautiful family. So you're sort of struck by how remarkable he is. Most striking, perhaps, if you're interested or have been interested in the story of Kitty Genovese, when you meet Bill, is you meet Kitty, the person. She's only known to all of us for the last 30 minutes of her life. And yet, she was this remarkably independent woman. She uh, drove a red Fiat convertible, managed a bar, made three times most of three times what the men she knew made. She met her lover in, at a bar in Greenwich Village by leaving a note on her door and telling her to be at a payphone at a point in time. This really dynamic, independent woman. And you meet that person through Bill. And then, and this was perhaps the most haunting, didn't realize it at the time, is just how affected Bill was, not just by the loss of his sister, but the way she reportedly died. That story of 38 watching and none helping propelled the course of his life. He was determined, he said, to prove that he was not only would have been one of the people who opened the window that night, but would have gone down into the street. Nothing came of that scripted project, but I maintain sort of connection to Bill. And then in 2004, the New York Times questioned its original story. What were there really 38? Did they really see what we reported they had, they had, would have, that they said, that we said that they saw? So Bill, who was completely impacted by that story, needed to find out for himself. And 
So beginning in 2004, 11 years ago, Bill set off on this now decade plus investigation to unravel that and many other mysteries. And so the long, that was a long answer to your question, but the short answer is as a documentary over the past 11 years. Bill Genovese, Kitty Genovese's uh, brother admits to his family and to the camera that he's obsessed with the story. How much did you become obsessed with the story, either in the beginning or during the course of finding out new information? You know, they're, they're, they're very different. Um, uh, I guess one can define obsession in different ways. Um, for Bill, um, he is trying to uh, find answers to unanswerable questions in a way. Um, but there are multiple mysteries that he's in pursuit of. One is what happened that night? What happened in those apartments? And as he discovers that the story that we've all come to know isn't true, he wants to find out how that story came to be. Who told, who created that story that we all know and that had such an impact? And then there's the mystery of who was his sister. She's only known to him for the life she led in New Canaan where he lived, but she lived a full life in New York City. And so he wants to find out who was, who was my sister. And the uh, last mystery is the person who killed his sister, Winston Mosley. What kind of person would do that? So Bill's obsession is, as self-proclaimed, is about finding answers to questions that have propelled the whole course of his life. I wouldn't describe mine as an obsession. I was documenting Bill's journey. But the, 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 the ideas, the, the things that come up as a result of uh, Bill's investigation, the power of these flawed and false narratives are things that I think any storyteller, any filmmaker, screenwriter, journalist lives and contemplates. How, and any human being, we, we all have um, a photo that sits on a end table or on, a, or on our desk and we've crafted a whole story around what happened and who, when, who took that photo, what was going on. And that story may not even be true, but it's shaped our lives. Similarly, and I think this happened on the night Kitty was murdered, we, we all hear things sometimes outside our window and craft a narrative as to what's going on outside. So what Bill's investigation on the unraveling of this false, multiple false narratives does is resonates, I think, not just with me, but with the viewer. So like Bill, like the audience, I'm in a sense on for, on the ride with Bill as he's unraveling. I just I will say as a screenwriter, I could never have, I don't have the talent to create a, a, an individual, a person as compelling, as courageous, remarkable, as empathic, as dogged as Bill Genovese. He is the most remarkable person and character that I will ever portray. You said he had an ability to put people at ease just instantly, you know, uh, upon meeting them. And do you think that that's part of the success of getting so many 
just in-depth, uh, real interviews from the quote-unquote various subjects that you talked about? For a half century, so many have been chewing on this story. Journalists, academics, screenwriters, musicians, graphic novelists, an opera. Uh, four weeks ago, Girls does an episode called Hello Kitty based on Kitty's Genovese's murder. Eight weeks ago, Law & Order SVU does an episode based on Kitty Genovese's murder. It took place 52 years ago, but they're still, it's still inspiring contemporary um, dramas. But what is interesting, what is notable, and that this was uh, where I was going with that, what, what is notable is that we really haven't heard from those who were the most directly impacted, either by Kitty's life or her death. And it really took Bill to get them, these people, to share their stories. And the reason I think they wanted to speak to Bill or were willing to speak to Bill is one, I think many, particularly the witnesses, particularly the eye and ear witnesses, felt they owed it to Kitty. And by Bill being as close to Kitty as anyone, he was their surrogate. He's her surrogate and felt they sh would share it with Bill. But the other thing, and I think this speaks to what's singular about Bill. Um, he has uh, been a double amputee since he was 19. And as he has said that when people meet him initially, they're uncomfortable. And he puts them at ease, so much so that you actually forget his disability. And that's how the film sort of portrays his disability. You just forget, you just move on. And so this innate ability to make people comfortable, I think is part of his, um, is a singular skill in a way. And, and many in the film are holding on to narratives, to stories that are deeply painful. And they share these memories with Bill because they realize that he understands innately emotional and, and physical trauma because he's lived it. He gets it. And so they're willing to open up to him. You got to keep in mind that most of the people in the film are not selfie generation. They have, um, they're not used to being photographed, much less filmed. Uh, and they were only willing to do it, I, in my opinion, because of Bill. What were your thoughts to possibly filming a face-to-face -face interview with uh, Winston Mosley and Bill Genovese? So Winston Mosley is the convicted killer of Kitty Genovese. What were your thoughts on that? Were you scared? Did you see, uh, you know, Bill's reaction to it and react off him? What's that? Um, I think for um, over the course of uh, decades, uh, Bill has had this push-pull about meeting his sister's killer. Uh, on the one hand, as he says in the film, um, he want, wanted to know what his life was like to get it to size size up the man uh, that murdered his sister. On the other hand, uh, not seeing him would be a great relief because of the anxiety. Um, I think um, the natural progression of his investigation was towards meeting Winston Mosley. And as a filmmaker, um, when you're year after year with somebody, uh, you understand what their need and their desire. Um, the mechanics of doing it is interesting. There's a program in the state of New York whereby the, they size up 
they have to evaluate whether the victim or the victim's family is capable of handling the meeting with the perpetrator of the crime. And they then go to the prison without it being announced to ask, once they've okayed, in a sense, approved the person to go meet with um, the, the, uh, the, the convicted uh, uh, person, they then go and ask or try to get their okay. So it's a, it's a process. And so what I think was most uh, affecting and most um, poignant was Bill's desire, the impact of Bill's desire to meet with his sister's murder on the rest of his family. Uh, and, and just how difficult that was for his, on his family. Are you certain in your mind that Winston Mosley is the killer of Kitty Genovese? Oh, there, there's no, there's no doubt. He confessed to the crime um, uh, multiple times. His defense was a psychiatric. It was an insanity defense. So, um, yeah, there, there's no question that he perpetrated the crime. And the film um, never um, explores his guilt or innocence. Um, now, Winston Mosley offers up and did over the course of multiple decades. Uh, narratives as to what took place, um, shifting narratives, but um, yeah, there, there's no question. And you should know that Winston Mosley actually passed away um, in, uh, in late, late March uh, of this year uh, after serving nearly 52 years in jail and out in prison. And I would recommend any of your viewers look up the letter to the editor that Bill Genovese, just Google William Genovese uh, letter to the editor of Times, and it's a remarkable editor, and it gives you a sense of just what kind of person Bill is. Right. Were you surprised at Winston Mosley's son's reaction? I was taken aback at how he tried to almost throw it back on Kitty and the family. Without giving too much away, I was just kind of shocked. Um, well, I, uh, if the question is, does it surprise me that Stephen Mosley, who was seven years old, when his father brutally murdered Kitty Genovese and a few weeks earlier had brutally murdered another woman, would grow up with a narrative that made his father seem less culpable and his victim seem more to blame. No, that's not surprising because after all, this is his father and in order to live with a reality that your father is essentially a budding serial killer, you would need or want to hold on to stories that might make it more palatable. I think that's in many respects what Bill is unraveling again and again and again, the stories that we tell ourselves that enable us to get through the night when we hear something outside the window or across 50 years. How often would you meet with Bill Genovese to film the interviews and go over the movie? Uh, there was a small group of us, uh, a cinematographer, co-producer, cinematographer named Trish Gavoni, co-producer Melissa Jacobs and myself, and then uh, they were stead constants, um, and then bring in different sound people over the course of 11 years. And we went up often. He, uh, Bill uh, lives or li lives two hours away from where I'm, I'm based in New York City. Bill lives a couple hours away. So we were there all the time. Um, and 
And then on the road, we would go join Bill. Bill's always driving, and we would uh, head out uh, on to meet the people that Bill wanted to meet. Uh, so we shot 300 hours, um, and uh, over the course of, as I said, 11 years, uh, and then leads would materialize. People that we thought uh, we couldn't find, he couldn't find, that he needed and desired to find, he was able to locate, and off we went. Um, and then, you know, certain things, uh, people deliberated as to whether they really wanted to talk to him. Uh, and over time, uh, he would communicate or we would communicate and they would agree and then off we went. How did you deal with the change in technology over that 11 years? Because DSLRs hadn't even come out yet. Audio gear was probably Well, that's right. Um, so we shot standard def at the beginning. We started shooting in 2004, 5, 6. That's standard def and then we're shooting high def. Uh, towards the end. Um, so you just, the film really, um, for the most part, plays out chronologically. So it, uh, it sort of follows the technology in a way. Um, and to, uh, we were able to up-res some of the uh, standard def footage so that it's just higher quality and it holds up. Um, uh, and I give enormous amount of credit to uh, Trish Cavoni. She did a beautiful job shooting the film. It's a very, very intimate film. Um, the story is a very personal story, and we're very, um, the viewer is very closely connected to Bill. And so, um, uh, you know, the, the footage that um, we shot, and also we took, there's a lot of uh, kind of remarkable archival footage from. Um, the early 1950s of Kitty uh, that has never been seen and archival footage also of the crime scene that had never been even developed. So all of that sort of um, uh, was sort of seamlessly um, interwoven by our two wonderful editors, uh, Gabriel Rhodes and Russell Green. You touched on briefly uh, that a lot of the people interviewed were not part of the selfie generation. Something that Mike Wallace said was so fascinating. This was, I'm not sure if in the 1960s, but has apathy become a way of life? You think about now, crimes committed here, even in LA, or, or people fighting. The first thing people do is pull out a cell phone and film it. How do you feel now with this technology where we're all mini documentarians? How has this become a way of life? How do we remove ourselves? from something so personal, or would we get involved, do you think? You know, it's interesting you, you ask that because um, the, Mike Wallace is speaking, in a sense, to a story that has such deep flaws in it <laughs> um, that Kitty Genovese sort of represented a apathy in 1964. Well, well, did it? I mean, sure, there are people who didn't act, who saw and knew what was going on, but then there's this woman, Sophia Farrar, who um, you know, the, the story of, of indifference and, and no one helping has this hero, Sophia Farrar. And so she runs out and she cradles Kitty in her arms. So Kitty actually died in the arms of her friend. And so I, I kind of, I struggle with this question of, you know, did that represent apathy? Does present day with cameras and people not acting represent apathy? I think I become more, um, I'm more skeptical of of stories representing some label that um, that we all act in a monolithic way on uh, any given day we're a hero or a coward. This notion that somehow um, 
a story becomes a morality play. That, that I think, is the fundamental problem with the story of Kitty Genovese, is it, it was a story too good to check. That it, it served as a totem, a kind of um, representation of who and what, defining of who and what we, we were or are, when in fact, it's, we're much more of all stripes. And what happened that night isn't 38 watched as if in an amphitheater, but some heard, some didn't, some acted, some didn't. Uh, and so I, I, I tend to resist um, personally labeling a story or a narrative that takes place now and saying it defines who we are and what we are. Um, certainly, there are moments when our better selves do not come out. Um, and invariably, there is someone, there's often one, who does stand up and help. There was a Sophia Ferrar that night, and for whatever reason, the choice was made to drop her from the narrative and tell the story of 38 who didn't do anything when in fact there was one, at least one, who did do something. So I'm more skeptical when I hear or s a story that seems to define who we are. James, what's the most important part of the screenwriting process for you? And I'm sure it varies from narrative filmmaking to documentary filmmaking. Dealing with the anxiety. Just being patient and not questioning or, I mean, I, it may sound like a glib answer. There, for me, is uh, I, the, the work I tend to do is uh, very research-based um, and uh, often um, requires extensive either interviews or um, documentation, uh, finding documents depends, because uh, I tend to do um, fact-based work. But then there's a, a, a moment when you've sort of gathered all this information, and um, you've got to remind yourself that the people that you're writing about are humans. They're real people. They're not um, marble statues or uh, photographs. Uh, they're... Um, they're daughters and sisters, mothers, um, sons. And that process of sort of being um, patient and, uh, and not rushing and racing, something I learned in this documentary, actually. I, I couldn't possibly write scenes like some of the scenes that occur in real life in the film. I'm not nearly as imaginative or creative. There's just no way. The scene that takes place between Stephen Mosley and Bill Genovese, or when Michael Farrar is remembering what it was like in the vestibule when he, the first time he stepped inside that vestibule where, after Kitty had been murdered, or when Bill meets with Kitty's lover, Marianne, or the guys in the bar, I can't write that well. I don't have that kind of imagination. And so if I've learned anything from this process, it's to be a better listener, take my time, be more patient, 
Um, you know, real life has um, some much, much more uh, creative uh, writer than, uh, well, certainly than I am. And I think uh, that that has been, that's the deepest, uh, most profound impact, I think, on my career as a screenwriter, just to be a better listener, um, take my time, be more patient, more open. <laughs>